This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Let's see, a luminary musical artist and community organiser, check, a play about a woman finding love in later life with a younger man, check, a peek into the magical realism world of infrared colour photography, and check, yep, I'm ready, let's go. When Roots and Blues returns to Stevens Lake Park this October, local musicians and singers will be on the weekend's roster, along with Chaka Khan, Tank and the Bangers, John Batiste, Tanya Tucker, Wilco, and many more. And one of those musical guests is my next guest this evening, Josh Runnels, known musically as JRTs, who will be performing at the festival with his Mo Soul Collective. Josh has been performing on Columbia stages for several years now, first alongside Simone Sparks and the band Loose Loose, and more recently with the Mo Soul Collective at the Blue Notes monthly Soul Sessions concerts. But as a true man of the arts, music is but one area in which Josh excels. He is an educator who uses art to help young people find their self-identity, a spoken word poet who, together with poet Takia Thomas, established the Columbia chapter of the Slam Poetry Organization, Louder Than a Bomb. He coordinates the education outreach program for True False, and he's a stage performer who totally stole my heart as the lion in the Mizzou production of The Wiz back in 2019. But overarching all of these is the fact that he is an arts luminary who describes his brand as art education and education about art and culture. Back in 2020, he collaborated with Chicago singer-songwriter Shah Brielle and appeared in the beautiful video for her song Come Home. And last year, he released his own single entitled Blinded. And this weekend, JRTs and the Mo Soul Collective will be the opening band for the Boone Doddle concert at the Les Bourgeois Blufftop Bistro. But for the next 15 minutes, I get him all to myself. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Josh. Thank you. That was a great intro. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, can I just say that I want to be you when I grow up as you're involved with and influencing so many artistic happenings and manifesting beautiful connective energy to bring people and ideas and art together. Are there times when you are still? What does stillness look like for you? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, stillness is needed much more nowadays. Uh, it's a it's a good problem to have. Um, I am pretty busy and, like I like to say, productive, um, trying to pursue the things that I love and community organized, but also um, pursue all of the arts that I can. But yes, uh, <laughs> meditation is still solitude and just moments of silence and uh, moments of jazz. Jazz is like the best noise next to silence. <laughs> two key words for you are passion and purpose. And I feel like those are two ideals that for many people were just ravaged by COVID and the past two years. And I wonder how you channeled your passion and purpose during that time. Well, what I would say is um, it's kind of becoming more cliche, but the metaphor or the parallel of 
a uh, butterfly in a cocoon that's buried in darkness. And I feel like everyone experienced what that felt like during the pandemic. But it depended on what we were doing in that darkness and what we were preparing for when the light came. And so uh, the pandemic is still upon us. However, we're in uh, better times. I, sh- I can say it feels more comfortable to be outside, outdoors, indoors at uh, live music concerts, uh, live art events, etc. And um, yeah, that two year time period of uh, 2020 into 2022 um, has been very challenging, but very rewarding. And um, I'm blessed to be in a position to be able to pursue my purpose passionately. And those two words came together um, I think back in 2015 when I was working in Chicago public school systems and I wrote up my, one of my first pieces that was pretty much an extended spoken word poetry piece on uh, alliteration of peas, the powerful peas. Uh, and so that passion purpose is the, is the two words that started off that poem. That poem has been one of my favorite poems. I haven't recited it in a while, but um, it's one of my favorite poems to recite. And then in 2020, I started my own company. And uh, I named it Art Is. Art Is Passion Purpose. Spelled similar to how my name is, J-R Is Passion Purpose. And yeah, those two words have been something that I've used as my motto, but also understanding that art is my tool. And those go hand in hand together to help others understand what their purpose is and how to maneuver passionately about their purpose. I want to find out why people are here, because when people know who they are and know their self-awareness, their self-identity, they know what their purpose is. It's easier for other people to interact and to work with them and to build and become one in harmony here. And so that's what I like to say that I'm about is building that type of community. How did you find your purpose? I would say art, um, art, metaphysics and religion. <laughs> I grew up in church um, and, you know, stereotypical Baptist church. My dad is a minister still to this day. My granddad is still a minister to this day. And, you know, for a second, I thought maybe I'm supposed to be a minister. Maybe that's my purpose. But the key for me is ministry through music or ministry through forms of art. And I may not be in the pulpit, but I feel like a soul sessions uh, is something that is like a church or the different types of events that we throw is more like community gathering for a reason to get fed and to take that uh, that food for thought and then go and keep going. And the gift just keeps on giving. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I definitely would say I found yeah, my purpose kind of more around my age of 21, 22. You write on your website about helping youth and young adults find higher consciousness through Afrofuturistic inspirations. And I wonder what that looks like in terms of your own artistic output. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, let me talk a little bit about Afrofuturism, just for mm. anyone that may not be privy to it. And I'm not I'm no expert at it. Um, I'm still fairly new to the uh, the genre. And um, thank you to a dear friend, uh, Takia Thomas and uh, a great community out here who are people that kind of have given me the tools and resources to educate myself more about, I guess, what I can do with my passion and purpose. But I, okay, let me start with Loose Loose, actually. Um, Loose Loose, we coined our sound or our genre as future soul. I kind of felt like we were the originators of that. But of course, like the universe is all connected. So there's probably millions of others who probably coined that sound or that genre as well. But it wasn't something that had reached the surface of the popular eye as far as genres. And so Loose Loose would go into talking about genre equality. Jake Summerscales, our drummer, he was a DJ here in town, an amazing guy. He was the one that came up with the idea of uh, having T-shirts that say genre equality. And, you know, it was funny because we were definitely hitting a number of different genres. And then uh, we landed in Future Soul that made the most sense. And so that carried over into me kind of exploring Afrofuturism. 
and I'll just name a few different figures who would be like the face or the pioneers of Afrofuturism. And of course, the one that's most dear to me is Sun Ra, famous jazz musician. Sun Ra, the type of style in which he uh, fashioned himself and his band and the orchestra that continues to this day is something that is futuristic. It essentially is just identifying what it looks like to be a black or brown person of the Afro hemisphere and to imagine and visualize what we will look like artistically, creatively in the future. And so we all are familiar with sci-fi, different 80s movies, uh, TV shows, and a lot of times uh, black and brown people were not included in the future mm-hmm. of science fiction. And so black people who were pioneers of being imaginative enough to create, like, I guess, some type of media, medium through art, uh, music, poetry, um, and what that would look like for us to be in the future. I want to also be someone that contributes to that and get students to think about us in the future and what that looks like for us. And so how does that look in your work? What I am expanding on in Future Soul, as far as like the type of sound of music is, I like to say it like this, it's pretty much music creation in reflection of our past. So when we think about soul music and the reflection of what soul music has been, where it came from, but we're also trajecting toward the future, but whilst in our present cultural state. And so what that looks like now, Octavia Butler will often say our responsibility is to reflect the times. And so if we're doing that, uh, we have to do it with a reflection of the past thinking about the future, but reflecting right now where we are in our current cultural state. And so essentially it's just on a more literal stance, it's it's really just like taking all of the different sounds that taught me how to be a musician and then uh, trying to encapsulate that in the sound that we're creating on stage at soul sessions or in the music that we're recording. I do love the works of Octavia Butler. She's an amazing writer. I have to say I was absolutely devastated when Loose Loose split up. I loved listening to you. The beauty of the music, your voice combined with Simone Sparks. I would say that pretty much every time I heard you at some point, it brought me to tears. It was just so beautiful. So talk to me a little bit about that split. It happened during the pandemic and how it left you feeling emotionally and artistically. Yes, uh, I've only talked about this one time publicly, uh, but this is great that I'm being asked again a little bit time later. But yeah, I was devastated as well. I felt like um, if you had been in a a good relationship with a good partner for years (laughs) and then, you know, you got your heart broken, I would say it's similar to that. It felt like that. It was simply, I guess, a time factor. It was kind of almost inevitable because of how talented each individual in Loose Loose was, is, Mm -hmm. and still is. And we were kind of in an interesting place of like, we all were starting to seek different directions of what we saw loose, loose to become. And we weren't on the same page. And so I was one, I will say I was one that was like, all right, y'all, like, I think we should try one more time. Like I'm, I'm that guy in a relationship. Like, I don't think we should break up just yet. Cause I don't, <laughs> I don't want to feel that regret that I felt in the past by leaving something too soon. <laughs> uh, but one thing I did tell the group and I did tell myself is that no matter what, I'm be here in Columbia and I'm going to continue like what we started. And that's exactly what I've done with soul sessions uh, with the help of many dear friends. Well, Last year, you brought out a single entitled Blinded, which I would love to play. But before we play it, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, Blinded. Blinded is like a poetic rap and like a really monotone (laughs) voice in which I am... I'll just talk about the video, the video visually. For those who uh, have not seen the video, you can find it on YouTube, but just type in blindedj.artiz. The video visually expresses me 
in like my Afrofuturistic self. So essentially, I'm in the I'm in the future with the way that I'm presenting myself. But of course, it's uh, almost surreal. And I am in a blue space. I'm very blue. Uh, I remember as a kid at that song, I'm blue, da boo dee ba boo dao. <laughs> I never knew what that song meant. And then I grew up and I was like, oh, he was sad. <laughs> it was simple. And so I'm in a blue space. And um, that is the whole first verse I'm speaking about, like my experiences of trying to be a, what I would call a silent king. And what that pretty much means is just someone who is destined for being a leader in leadership, but is pretty much silent and is shying away from it. And um, I'm pretty much blinded to the reveal of the light that I needed to see at the end of the tunnel to know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in life. I'm blinded and I'm blinded by what the finer things and I'm, I'm pretty much insinuating the finer things are the things that we experience on earth that we think are the best fruits, but may not be on a material level and a spiritual level. There is something more in store. And so now we move through the video and now I'm in a melancholic gray background space. And so I'm coming out of blue going into gray. Uh, so it's a little bit more of a different color. And then it's a reveal of me now in, in hell. <laughs> I'm in red and I'm like going through the fire. But that fire is has, of course, has a light at the end of the tunnel. And I look at blinded as me being able to shine brightly at the light that shines on the last scenes of blinded. And so that's my best way of explaining blinded by using the visuals. And those visuals were created amazingly by Anthony Jensen in Jefferson City. And we did a lot of great work together. So I appreciate working with him well let's take a listen we can't play the video because we're on radio people can seek it out but here is the track blinded blind about the finer things the fire things behind the scenes i try to be a silent king but i am me a lion beast if i am you and i am we we rise and reach a riot peak when i am weak and you are strong you are in me rely on we iron sharp as i see I am silent seeking, he shall find the key. Open doors, the blind can see, and I'm fine with free. But if it was up to me, I luckily do not believe in luckily. Fit up to be blind about the finer things. Trying to see who ride with me, who I can see, who's whoever ride with me, fly with me. I can see, and I am seen. Rather all the time, my team is fly as we decide to be, and I can see you, I and me. Blinded by the, by the finer things Blinded by the, by the finer things It's crazy what the eye can see It's crazy, heroes die to be Legendary, somebody lied to me So I'm widening the higher things The finer things and minor things Go finer things, we try to read We ride the wave and we righteous We and we night and day to week Blinded by the finer things Blinded by the finer things Blinded by the, blinded by the We blame it on the week Blinded by the, we blinded by the, by the finer things Blinded by the, by the finer things Blinded by the, blinded by the We blame it on the This October, you are on stage with one of the magnificent Queens of Soul, Chaka Khan. Talk to me about what that means to you as a performer, but also thinking back to you as that high school kid who, for a moment in time, wasn't sure what the way forward would be. What does it mean to be on that same stage? 
Ooh, yeah, it's, that's the biggest step so far. It's, it's amazing. It's, um, you know, I manifested it. Uh, Loose Loose actually was supposed to be in Roots and Blues Festival in 2020. However, the pandemic happened and things shifted and then Loose Loose separated. And so I was like, oh, that's my goal. I'm going to figure out a way to get to Roots and Blues. And um, at the time, I did not know who the uh, new owners of Roots and Blues were, but just kind of manifesting, like doing certain shows, being very, I guess, uh, this uh, very, what's the word? Um, Talented. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was, <laughs> was going to say uh, very dis- like indecisive, but kind of decisive at the same time about I'm, I'm real peculiar about which shows I would like to do in town. And I ended up doing a show at a church. I don't want to mispronounce the name, but this church is where I, I met the owner of Roots and Blues, one of the owners of Roots and Blues, and she enjoyed our performance. And she was like, we have to have you at Roots and Blues. And I'm like, yes, thank you. It's time. And then the lineup rolled out and I was just baffled because this is a lineup I've never seen at Roots and Blues before, especially that Saturday with John Batiste and Tank and the Bangers. I know Tank and the Bangers were here last year, but I missed them because yeah. that was our first day of soul sessions on that same day but i want to catch him this year well yeah being on the same stage as shaka khan uh that i kind of i've never really had a really good support in chicago that's where i'm from uh but my family they really are now starting to believe that hey you you actually might do something with music we're going to support <laughs> you now and so that was really important for them to see shaka on that same lineup as me in the band i see you as an artist of huge talent and like many of the gifted, hardworking and ambitious artists I meet here in Colombia, I always think, why are you here when you could be lighting up much bigger stages with your talent? What keeps you here? I moved here because I knew that I needed something different. I didn't know what. I didn't know if Columbia had it. I just had never left Chicago and it was time to do something new. And so when I left Chicago and moved here, uh, I ended up working for the university's theater department. And that's probably how you saw me. <laughs> Those who were able to see me at the Wiz, that was amazing. Uh, thank you for acknowledging that earlier. That was a good time. So I was here doing some community, uh, youth community development work. And meeting Loose Loose was like the most important thing because it let me know, okay, I did not like forget what I'm trying to truly do, which is to be an artist, full-fledged artist. And so Loose Loose got that back on my radar and I started to see a clear path of how I actually can navigate in as an artist in the industry but I need a home base or I need a base for pretty much how people support me and I want to I need help Uh, everyone needs help everyone needs a support system I have family in Chicago but as far as an artist I had no support as an artist in Chicago or a little to none. I don't want to discredit anyone who has been supporting me since day one, but it felt like it felt like I didn't have much support. I got here and it's almost like Columbia is like, we love everything you have to offer. And yes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yes, this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, but, uh, so I, I first see me staying here uh, back and forth. And so I would love to have at least some type of foundation here, like where I maybe can you know buy a house, but also own a house somewhere else. And I can always have a reason to come back to Columbia because I own a home here and that would be great. But yes, that's why I'm here. Columbia is very tight knit. 
the art scene here is amazing. People support and love each other, and I've never felt anything like this uh, anywhere else. Well, I am so glad to hear it, and I hope we get to keep you for a long time. <laughs> My guest has been Josh Runnels, known musically as JRTs. He will be performing with the Mo Soul Collective at this weekend's Boondoddle at the Les Bourgeois Bluffed-Up Bistro on Saturday night. But if that's not on your game card for this weekend, the next Soul Sessions event featuring the Mo Soul Collective will be on Saturday, August the 26th at Columbia's Rose Park. Josh, thanks for the passion and purpose you bring to the arts in Columbia and for being my guest today. I am honored. Thank you so much. <laughs> it has long irked me how we live in a world where nobody blinks at an older man having a much younger female partner. Yet if an older woman is in a relationship with a younger man, eyebrows are raised, people assume it'll never last and we throw around terms like cougar. As in so much in life, there is one rule for men and an entirely different set of rules for women. So it is nice to see a play which focuses on a love affair between an older woman and a much younger man. The play, The Things You Least Expect, written by Joan Vale Thorne, opens at Talking Horse Productions and centres on widow Claire Gardner, her older, disapproving and bossy sister Mira, and Sam, a 20-something volunteer chaplain who she meets while her domineering husband is dying in hospital. Plus, just to throw a love triangle into the mix, Claire's own free-spirited daughter Caroline also sees something special in Sam. This is a comedy, for the most part, but it takes a peek at serious issues like the sexual desires of middle-aged women, family relationships, and yes, May-to-December romances. It's a story that raises questions about self-fulfillment in later life, finding love after bereavement, and the oft-complicated relationships between mothers and daughters. And tackling all of this are my two guests this evening, well-known actors on Columbia stages, Kirsten Maloney and Christine Bay, who play the two sisters, Claire and Mira. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, ladies. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. As I have discussed many times on this show, there are far fewer good roles for women than men within the world of theatre. And then if you factor in good roles for women over 50, well, the number of plays dwindles massively. So Kirsten, as somebody with a long background in theatre, why is it that men get to be old and crusty in plays and women almost always have to be ingenues? I think that's what society expects. That's what society's trained us to expect. So when a role comes up for an older woman, I was excited to audition for it. Do they come up often? Not very often at all, actually. Not even in Colombia, where we're so conscious of this kind of thing. It just Are they out there and nobody chooses to produce them? Or are they just not even written? I don't know the answer to that. But judging from what I see on television and in films and the plays that I've seen, we love our ingenues and our older women are witches and mothers. I do think that more are being produced and more are being written, but it tends to not be golden uh, years, musicals and things. And that's what a lot of people, as Kirsten had said, have been trained to appreciate and like best. I think also they're not very often the leads. Mm. They're more often the, the side characters supporting the younger characters. Or the comedians. Right. <laughs> 
And that's the other thing about this play. As well as featuring not one, but two women over 50, the play also passes the Bechdel test, named after the graphic novelist Alison Bechdel, and that it is a work that has at least two women who have names and who talk to each other about something other than a man. Though admittedly, a good chunk of the conversation in the play does revolve around young Sam, but far from all of it. So, Christine, how refreshing does this play feel to you? Oh, it's a wonderful opportunity. I had the chance to have a good role for a woman over 50 in other desert cities, which um, Meg Phillips directed at CEC several years ago. And it was refreshing to be able to be on stage with older people and understand the problems and the backgrounds that went for a character of that age. So it was quite challenging, but very rewarding. Kirsten, what was the last play you did that celebrated older women? You know, I think for a long time, I've been playing younger than my age, and I can't quite get away with that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So I I graduated from Ingenue to Mothers, and um, gosh, it's been a while since I've been on stage, so... Difficult to remember, but I think Paper Daddy at Talking Horse Theater played the matriarch running a household, and that was an original script that Talking Horse did. I talked a little bit about the plot in my intro, but let me have you both tell us a little bit about your two characters, Claire and her older sister, Mira. Kirsten, you play Claire, so let's start with you. Tell us about Claire. Claire is a romantic at heart, but her desire and her the romance part of her life has been squelched by her marriage for 40 years. And all of a sudden she finds herself a widow and doesn't really, I think Mira says this quite often, that Claire doesn't know how to navigate the world on her own. So not only... From Claire's point of view, not only is this play about the romance that she engages in, but it's about her discovering who she is for the first time because she was married before she graduated college and really discovering what her heart wants other than romance. And Christine, tell us about Mira. Oh, Mira always thinks she knows best. And Being the older sister, she looks upon her younger sister as more of a child than a sibling at this point. But her heart's in the right place, but she does try to bully people into doing things. What do we know about her background, her history before this play? She was, I think, mostly athletic lady. She was the headmistress. And, and the hockey mistress at the school in which she taught. So she's very strong-willed. She's single. Um, I think she's pretty much always been single and has a pretty strict worldview of how things ought to be. And then besides the two of you, there is Sam and there is Claire's daughter, Caroline. So Kira, tell us just quickly about those other two characters. Well, Sam is an interesting character because he does come in and he sweeps Claire off of her feet. And it's difficult to tell what his motivations are. And that really is something that's up to the audience to decide because it's never explicitly um, 
the playwright doesn't tell you explicitly what Sam is up to. And Caroline is in the right place at the right time with the wrong guy. I don't know how else to sum that up. Perfectly summed up. <laughs> Kirsten, a couple of years ago, I guess it was now, I think it was pre-pandemic, back in the before times, you hosted a Meisner Technique acting workshop that I came along to, and it was fabulous, super interesting. And a large part of that acting technique is thinking yourself into the character's emotional state and life before you step out onto the stage. So tell me, I'm always curious, when you and Claire are alone together, where do you go? Like, where do you take her? What do you do together? Fantasize. So I think Claire has this very uh, rich, fantasy, romanticized inner life. And she hasn't been able to express that in real life on her day to day. So I think that's where she exists in her head. And that's what she's looking for in real life as well. So what is that thing that you think about as you step out onto the stage as Claire? Oh, I make up little romance stories in my head. Yeah, just little romance fantasies. And Christine, what is your relationship with Mira before you step on the stage? How do you get into the mindset of Mira? I try to humanize her as much as possible. I mean, she does come off as headstrong and bullying initially, but I try to think about her backstory. Why is she this way? She really cares about her sister. Why is it so important for her? So I, I try to to put caring into the bully. <laughs> I must admit, when I started reading it, I was like, I don't know if I can finish this. Mira is annoying the pants <laughs> off me. She's so bossy, so bossy. Yeah. But then it settles in after a while. <laughs> well, Christine makes her adorable, so. Don't you know she must have been, um, Wallace must have just really, totally disliked her by far. <laughs> yeah, they must have been really awkward family dinners. Oh, I'll bet. <laughs> I think you should do that before the play opens. I think you should um, go out and pretend Wallace is there and have a family dinner with Claire and Mira and the imaginary Wallace. Oh, my. Well, I would love to have you both perform a small section from the play. So, Kirsten, would you set the scene for us first and then I'll just hand it over to the two of you. So this is the two sisters in Claire's home and this is the day of the viewing for before her husband's funeral. So Sam is there as the attendant for the casket in the other room. And uh, Mira and Claire are having a conversation in the living room. How's he doing, your attendant? He's a great comfort. I should warn you, Claire, the libido can run rampant in these circumstances. What circumstances exactly? Grief, the long illness, thrown out of wedlock for the first time in 40-some years. You're very vulnerable, and Wallace is to blame. To be perfectly honest, I quite disliked Wallace, and I hated having to stand by and watch him make a victim of you. Victim is a bit strong, don't you think? You were entirely under his thumb. He did everything but breathe for you, put every thought you ever had into your dainty head, even picked out your clothes. You don't know who you are, Claire. You're an invisible person. Then I won't have to disappear upstairs, will I? To put on the Chanel suit Wallace wanted me to wear to his funeral. 
But then what difference does it make if I'm invisible and nobody sees me? Maybe I should come just dressed in my libido. Let it all hang out. Now, Claire, I was speaking metaphorically, of course. What you need is someone to guide you gently back into the world. The world without Wallace. And who would that be, I wonder? Well, you know me, Claire. You were the fragile flower. I was a strong, handsome young woman. I could be a great help to you now. I could even come and live with you if you'd like. What if I won't be here to live with? What if I've taken a villa in Tuscany for the summer? A room with a view in Florence for the fall. Rome beckons for the winter. Did you know there were palm trees in Rome? Nothing is as yet written in stone for the spring. This is what you did while that poor man was dying? Planned your post-mortem vacation? I must say I'm surprised at you, Claire. You're thinking ahead all by yourself. I have to confess it was what Wallace was planning for us when he retired. Well, you certainly can't manage it now all by yourself. You'd be utterly lost. On the other hand, as you know, I spent several summers in Florence, spoke Italian fluently. I'm sure it will come back to me. I don't want you to go with me, Mira. I want to be on my own. I have to find out who I am before I really do become invisible. That whole idea of older women being invisible is so, again, one of those super annoying things and, and is very much part of what comes across in this play. There are so many great moments of comedy and great lines, but also great moments of truth within it. So there's a, a lot of scenes in this play. One scene often flipping back and forth between two locations and you're in a small black box theatre. So lighting is a massive component of the rhythm of the play. And I know you're not either of you the director, but Kirsten, can you talk a little about these multiple scene transitions and the staging choices? Sure. Well, we have Claire's home um, where the majority of the scenes take place. And then the other half of the scenes take place in Europe. Claire travels to Florence and Venice and Rome and so those are sections of the stage that are lit separately and set up separately. And then there's this external space where the emails take place, where when people are writing an email, they step into this unfurnished space that is delineated by the lighting. OK, so it's pretty clear what's going on all the way through for the audience, because there are lots of moments when, like you say, there is this back and forth between one person reading their portion of the email and then the other actor reading their part of the email. So it looks really obvious on paper. <laughs> I was wondering how it looked on stage. Yeah, I think you'll be able to tell the difference as an audience member, because the people reading the emails are interacting in the space, in the home space. And the person speaking the email is stepped away from that area and in a special light. So here's another stagecraft question I have for you. And either of you could answer that. Maybe it's more relevant to Kirsten in this play. <laughs> there are several reasons why I can't see myself on the stage. One is a belief that I cannot learn lines. But the other is the whole having to make out with another actor. I'm just not a very physically demonstrative person, even to my husband. So what are your acting tips for these scenarios? Tips. Hmm. One, it's just pretend it's not intimate. So there's, there's nothing for a spouse who's in the audience to be jealous of. 
The the other thing is you you can imply a lot without having to get down and dirty. You know what I mean? <laughs> People in the audience will use their imaginations. Smoke and mirrors and lots of imagination. <laughs> Christine, any, any additional thoughts about love scenes? <laughs> well, seeing as I'm not in the love interest, and frankly, I rarely ever am, but I always find that when you're looking at that person in that character, you pick things out that can make you respond in that way. So that helps me sometimes when I'm looking at someone across the stage and thinking, oh, what a wonderful person. And it may not be somebody I would love, but I'm, I'm thinking about what is good about them. What is it about them that I'm responding to? About their character or about them in person? Their character. Their character. Okay. <laughs> Well, the Joan Vale Thorne play, The Things You Least Expect, directed by Nathan O'Neill, opens at Talking Horse Productions in Columbia and features my guests this evening, Christine Bay and Kirsten Maloney, plus Ian Freeland and Megan McNew. The show runs for two weekends and you can find out more at TalkingHorseProductions.org. And Christine Bay and Kirsten Maloney, thank you so much for giving us a peek behind the curtains and for making time to chat today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Diana. Since we recorded our chat a couple of days ago, a family emergency in the cast has postponed this show, but hopefully just by a few days. So please do check the Talking Horse Productions website for updates on the show's schedule. When you find an empty artistic lane, most people would go all out to protect it, but not so the infrared photographer Matthew Piper, who has positioned himself as an ambassador and champion of infrared colour photography and is keen to encourage others to follow him down the rabbit hole of surreal hues. He calls his work dreamscapes or magical realism, and although he also works in black and white infrared, it is in the relatively empty lane of colour infrared photography that he has established himself, especially on the art festival circuit. In Matthew Piper's works, summer trees glisten white as if covered in snow, palm trees appear purple against an orange sky, and the sun can shine pink above a bank of scarlet trees. They are indeed magical worlds. Matthew is the founder of an infrared photography hub on Instagram at infrared underscore global, on which he curates a dynamic range of infrared photography styles from around the world. In 2020, he was one of the award winners of an international infrared photography contest, which received 3,000 entries from almost 500 photographers. And he also has a PhD in philosophy and cognitive science, which his thesis was about the experience of the passing of time. We were due to chat back in May, right before he came to Columbia's Art in the Park Festival. And then the COVIDs got him. And so at the last minute, he had to cancel. But by that time, I had become so enchanted of his magical worlds that I was determined to get him on the show at some point. And this is that point. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Dr. Matthew Piper. Oh, wow. You don't have to say that. That is, <laughs> so that was magnificent, what you just said. I think we should end the interview there. I don't think I could go up from that. That was spectacular. Well written, well described. 
am very flattering. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You are a very intriguing and interesting character. I have to say there was a lot of rabbit holes I could dive down with you. But so before we get into the arcs, I am slightly fascinated by this. Can we just get your 30 second elevator speech about the argument against computational theories of consciousness and why you cannot eat causal cake with an abstract fork? (laughs) 30 seconds starting now. Go. Um, Basic idea is that the substrate really matters. So computation is an abstract notion, but it only occurs in actual systems. The actual systems we make with silicon lack critical elements that we see in biological structures where we know consciousness does exist. So there's a fractal structure to organic matter. There's a self-organizing structure to organic matter. And there's an interdependence of the units. You can think of those as cells, neurons, and so forth. All of those things do not exist in any foreseeable silicon-based systems. What this creates in organic systems are larger-scale oscillations and field effects that we've shown now to be relevant to conscious experience. Okay, that's it. That's 45 seconds. That's way more than we needed. (laughs) (laughs) That was a dissertation. (laughs) I know. It was like 150 pages. I didn't read all of them. I just read the first 15. (laughs) All right. So I have to presume there is some connection between your curiosity about time consciousness and your love of magical realism dreamscapes. Is there a link there? Well, the most fundamental one would be, I I think one of the great virtues of human experience is creation. And we've reified that in the idea of the creator or God is omnipotent. And if we think about the qualities that we would ascribe to a God or gods, there are qualities in humans that we particularly find valuable, like wisdom or like love and compassion. Uh, but one of these is creation and creativity. So the, the unifying factor of my two-path life would be their creative acts. Theory is where I take scientific findings, uh, speculate on them, and look for hidden symmetries that can help us explain and understand and unify what seem to be disparate results. Okay, so then infrared photography, I just fell in love in 2001, and that has afforded me a very unusual and creative outlet to create what has the feeling of a painting, but with the precision of a photograph. And That's what draws me to that. But creativity would be the unifying factor. Well, talk a little bit about your love for that particular medium, for infrared photography. I mean, your photography work is absolutely stunning. Thank you. But it seems like there's something beyond beauty that pulls you towards it. I mean, they're so captivating. What is it that you love about color infrared? Well, it's essentially surreal. At least it can be. And for me, that transcends a typical photograph. There's an incredible amount of wonderful photography out there. But the creative expression that's permitted through the use of certain infrared techniques, the selection of different color channels that works particularly well in infrared, allows you to create a fantasy world of sorts. And that's irresistible to me. But the the fundamental element of infrared photography that drew me in and got me hooked back in 2001 was just that sense of this is real, but it, but there's something magical about it. This is real. I can tell that 
that's a, a locale here on this earth. But why is the sky black? And why, why are the trees glowing white? Was it taken at night? And I just recall in the one class that I've had in my life that pertains to photography, which was a cinematography class at Chapman University out in Orange County, that my instructor, Rick Ferncase, introduced infrared to me. And it was just an immediate effect for me. Like, this is photography, photography plus is the way that I thought of it. And so I started my infrared photography work doing black and white Kodak HIE Konica. And I had my images, then I wanted to add color to it to make it even more fantastical. And I hand colored those images back in that day. That's something I still do, but it's uncommon for me to do that. I now normally do color infrared, as you said. And there, there's just this huge literal spectrum of possibilities. And each one is different. That's the one thing that I absolutely love about the editing process. It's like chess, where you play the board, you play or you work with the data that your sensor has captured, which depends on the kind of camera that you have, of course, and the filters that you use. And you have something, and then you see what can be pulled out of it. So maybe we should briefly run over exactly what infrared photography is. So when you think about the colors that we can see from violet through to red, those colors are occupying a certain wavelength from about 400 to 700 nanometers. Is that right? It's a little, yes, that's generically right. It's a little broader, but yes. And infrared picks up the longer wavelength beyond red. So infrared film largely is to the to the larger end, like 700 plus wavelength level. So tell me about what equipment you need. Do you need a special camera? How are you making this happen? Right. So for those that are interested in infrared photography, let me just start there. With whatever camera you have, you can shoot infrared. All you would need to do is get an infrared filter, one that selectively passes infrared light. The problem that you run into is motion blur because inside your camera, if you have any standard camera, there's a piece of glass inside that blocks infrared light. And the reason for that is your manufacturers want your photographs to look like what you saw. In my case, I don't want that at all. But because there's a piece of glass blocking infrared light inside and you're only selectively passing infrared light on the exterior of your lens, you'll need very long exposures. So you can try it and you can experiment, but you'll if anything's moving in the picture, it will blur. If you want to shoot in the way that I do or just with very high resolution, you need to modify the camera. You need to have part of the guts of the camera, the piece of glass that blocks the infrared light. You need to remove that and put in another piece of glass. And there are a large range of options in that regard. In my case, I put in a clear piece of glass so that my camera is what's called full spectrum. My camera is sensitive at that point to all the light we see and the light we don't see. So there's a further step of the hardware, which is which filter do I select? Infrared begins, say, around 750. The infrared light that comes in is registered as magenta, which isn't actually out there, but allows you some playing room. So you can see now where an infrared photograph can get some colors that it wouldn't, say, objectively have, but adds a, an artistic element. So 
you're going to use different filters on your lenses to select different portions of the electromagnetic spectrum. The more visible lights you have, the more color possibilities and the wider the color, visible color gamut it's going to be in your image. But as long as you have a properly converted camera, it'll still be sensitive to that infrared portion of the spectrum. And you can get a combination. So that's what my work is. My work is an absolute focus on how to combine on one sensor visible and infrared light. And you... You're working digitally, so you're seeing this as you're taking it. It's not like you have to wait till you get back to a dark room to develop it to really see the colors. You can see the incredible spectrum of colors whilst you're looking into the camera. Somewhat. A lot of the cutting-edge work that's done in the tiny infrared community is on how to edit the images and to pull things out that you wouldn't see. You can white balance your images, which is telling your camera, your sensor, to take one color as white. And that's typically done in infrared photography. I do not do that. I think it gives me more creative possibilities. So when I take a picture that only lets in a little visible light in the dark red spectrum plus the infrared spectrum, what you would actually see on the back of my camera is an amalgam of red, dark red, and magenta, and that's it. It would not look appealing in the slightest. But a fairly quick edit, you can desaturate certain color channels and change a few things. And then you can end up with an image like Summer Glow, which people can find on my website, for example. One of my more popular images, which is blue Lake Michigan and very glowing white leaves. So can you see uh, the exposure? Yes. Can you see the composition? Of course. And you do this in live mode. That's an important point to make. But you you really can't see where it's going to go or where it might go if you're not using presets. A lot of infrared photographers use presets so that once they have an image, they click a button, it goes through a few editing processes, and then they have their result. But going back to what I had said earlier, I tried to let each image speak to me in terms of the hues that are there, the amount of glow factor, the relative emphasis of shadow and light, and all these things. I try to do it individually. Well, let, let me just say that your website is Matthew Stewart Piper, Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T, MatthewStewartPiper.com. Yes. So if people want to go and have a look, they can go and look at your work. There is another work I came across that I would love to have you talk about. And I'm I'm not sure if this one is on your website, as it was an entry for an infrared photography contest called Life and Death. And the work is a color infrared in which an an upswept tree leans into the center of the frame, extending out above rows of identical gravestones, which rise out of red grass and look down to an ocean of which we can just see a small sliver. There is so much time consciousness in this image. Obviously, you have an eye, amazing eye for composition, but how much when you're looking at a work, how much is symbolism part of what you're going for in that image? It's a huge factor. That's a great point, Diana. That's just going to elevate the number of levels of significance in the image. It's wonderful to come up with a great composition, but if you actually have elements in the composition that have more subtle and associative meanings, then people just have a deeper resonance with it, or at least that's possible. So 
places like cemeteries, various castles, of course, towers, of course, ruins, of course, chateaus, different houses, structures in general, bridges, of course. Uh, it's the intersection for me of pure nature with some human influence where I tend to find my most compelling images, I think. It's not always the case. Um, I do go for a universality that, that you find just in nature, but I love incorporating, and the fantastical style that I do loves incorporating, so to speak, any kind of man-made structure, especially one of, of any antiquity or symbolic significance. I think that's an astute observation on your part, Diana. No, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very much drawn to those spaces. I will also say that's Fort Rosecrans in San Diego, Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery. It's an amazing place. Any photographer should go there because like other wonderful locations, you're going to get light reflected off the Pacific and then direct sunlight. The lighting there is, is really a treat. Yeah, it's a really beautiful moment. It feels like a very long and a very short moment all in one. So I don't know if this is even feasible or what it would look like. Obviously, you focus on nature, trees, architecture, man-made structures and natural environments. Can you shoot portraits in color infrared? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so there are two ways uh, that that falls out. And for all your portrait photographers, you should find this interesting. If you have a lower lower energy light sources, it, you just get a very smoothing effect and it will change the color of the eyes a little bit. Now, with stronger light, that would be emitted maybe closer to the UV. There's more energetic electromagnetic frequency. It'll penetrate the skin and due to the contrast increasing effects of infrared photography, you will be able to see a bit of a ghoulish effect. The veins near the skin will become visible. So you have a, if you want to create some Halloween images, infrared photography is the way to go. And I, I've experimented with both. So it's, it's a nice medium for model photography uh, with certain softer lights. And then you can really get some kooky effects when you're pulling out vein structures in faces and arms, of course, and so forth. So tell me why, when you have this artistic lane, almost entirely to yourself, I mean, there's not a, a huge number of color infrared photographers out there. Why do you want to encourage other people into your space? Oh, just lots of reasons. It's something I think everyone can like. There's the fantasy element. I think that it, in its aspects, can transcend traditional photography. It's something new and novel and original, which drives me, but I also think it is a compelling aesthetic feature for most people. It's unfortunate that it's such a small niche, but it's growing pretty quickly now over the past few years. But I, I want to share it because it deserves to be shared. I, I'm excited to have the whole, the whole genre of photography, the infrared photography, grow. Final question. I'm always curious what artwork artists have in their own home. And, and so particularly for you, who is very interested in the passing of time and reminders of beauty, what, what piece of art do you have above your bed or maybe at the end of your bed that you look at when you wake up? What do you surround yourself with in your own home? Actually, uh, this is going to probably redound poorly, uh, but I have used some of my space as a gallery 
to put my work when it otherwise would not be displayed at shows. But I can tell you at the end of my bed on my dresser, I have a photograph, a gift from a friend of mine, John Galbraith, a wonderful photographer uh, with an incredible pedigree in photography as well. He worked with Ansel Adams and so forth. And he gifted me a certain piece of his taken in Ireland, I think. So that's one shot. But behind my bed, I, I had one of my own pieces, which is called Heavenward. And it's a shot of the sky, but with a composition of sort of fractally growing uh, leaves and vines and tree branches. I think that one is on your website, right? Yes, that's, that'd be on my website. To see Matthew Piper's magical realism landscapes, go to his website at matthewstuartpiper.com. And that's Stuart is spelled S-T-U-A-R-T, matthewstuartpiper.com. And you can also check out the world of infrared photography on Instagram at infrared underscore global, which I think is the site that that's the one that you manage or oversee. So Matthew, thank you so much for an amazing portfolio of work. And I really hope that we do see you back in Colombia soon. And thanks for making time to chat about your work. I thank you. I thank the listeners. And I also want to throw this out. I think you do such a nice job and your voice is so mellifluous. <laughs> I think your listeners would like it if I interviewed you. I think we have to do it. We have to do it. There we go. You had this manifold life uh, in the arts, so many experiences. I think this is what the listeners would like. Are you up for it? Well, they, they may do. I'm not sure they're going to have time to listen to it today. <laughs> we might have to reestablish this for another time. They have a phrase, all good things to those who wait. So yeah. perfect. <laughs> I had to wait to talk to you. So, you know, there you go. It's just returning the favor. Back to the beginning. That's perfect. Well, thank you very much for putting this together, taking the interest. And uh, please, anyone who likes, feel free to reach out to me with any questions you have on infrared photography or photography in general. I'd love to help. Perfect. Thank you, Matthew. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. that is it for another week all the speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm and of course you can also connect through the kopn website at kopn.org Thank you to my guest this evening, musician and community organizer Josh Runnels, aka Jay Artis, actors Kirsten Maloney and Christine Bay from Talking Horse Productions, and infrared photographer Matthew Piper. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!